I love art that engages an audience, and I like mm-hmm. when people are able to participate because I think people want to be part of something, even if it's uncomfortable and real <laughs> stupid. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Gil Zambrano. Together, we speak to people from around the globe about their practice and passions in the fields of print media and multiples. Hello, Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products to your practice since 1997. If you're looking to add some pizzazz to your practice, check out their new line of additive glitter. Add a sprinkle of their additive glitter to any Speedball fabric screen printing ink to bring a touch of shimmer to your next design. This additive glitter can be used in nearly any ratio, whether your sparkling vision is more subtle or dripping with scintillating shine. Check out the link in the show notes. My guest this week is Henry Getfer, an artist, curator, and educator based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We talk about the joy and the pain of performance art, the effects of the pandemic on all of our self-worth, the performance of masculinity, and how printmaking fits into all of this. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to clown around with Henry Getfer. Hi, Henry, how's it going? It's going, how are you doing, Miranda? It's good. It's good. Thank you for joining me and for deciding that my email wasn't a scam when I asked you on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, and then it's good to take a leap of faith. Exactly. Exactly. Do you get the, um, oh, I was looking over my wife's shoulder at her laptop and her birthday is coming up. I don't know if you've gotten that one, but that's that's a classic. I've gotten that one several times throughout the years. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yes, I've gotten that one. And and she wanted you to come on this podcast. Yeah, that's what the laptop said. <laughs> well, I've I've known your work, you know, at least through I, you know, I met you briefly at SGCI when you're doing a little performance piece there. I heard you on the newsprint podcast, and I just really think what you're doing is interesting and different. And I'm excited to get a chance to learn more about you and and what you do. Awesome. I'm really excited to be here and to tell you about it. Cool. Well, before we get into all the questions, would you introduce yourself by way of letting people know who you are, where you are, what you do? Uh, yeah, I'm Henry Gepfer. I'm out of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I work as an educator here. So I'm a printmaker, but I am teaching across four different schools locally. And I also work as a press operator for Resolve Studio. Uh, we make Riso prints. Periodically, I work as a curator. I formerly belonged to an artist-run space in Philadelphia called Little Berlin, and I've helped to organize and curate exhibitions for the Lancaster Printers Fair. Uh, so I have my hand in a lot of stuff. Yeah, keeping busy. Like many of us in the arts, yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah, it's keeping, a- keeping afloat with many different rafts, like all strapped together precariously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so where did you grow up and what role did art play in, in that part of your life? I grew up in rural Lancaster County outside of a small town called Elizabethtown. I drew compulsively when I was a kid. It was just, it was, I don't, I, 
I don't know if it was just that it was something that I was good at or the lack of things to do where I was at. I mean, I spent plenty of time outside, but a lot of my memories from growing up are just like planted on the floor in front of the TV, just drawing mm. for hours. So I, I came to art through drawing and it just is a thing that stuck with me. Like all the different phases of my life, art has been a, a concrete part of that up to and including like when I was in middle school, my parents signed me up for drawing lessons so I could actually learn how to do things with some sense of formal quality. And then art is what I ended up going to school for. So it's it's been like the one real mainstay of my life, yeah. along with television, of course. Oh, yeah. Beautiful television. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's funny you should say that, that particular image of being in front of the TV and drawing. And I, I realized how much I did that as a kid and watching cartoons and trying to draw the cartoon characters and, and doing all of that and, and how it's just pre internet, pre social media, there was such a finite amount of things you could do to entertain yourself. And for me, a lot of it was, I didn't even really like what was on the television, but it's what was on the television. You didn't really have a choice. It was, you could watch reruns of some poorly drawn, poorly written cartoon or I was in the Seattle area, or you could go outside and be freezing and wet, or you could stare at the wall. <laughs> it's in like a lot going on. <laughs> yeah, I, I completely identify with that because it was like the TV was always on and I'd either be drawing or like reading Mad Magazine. So like it's just constant stimulation on a sensory end from day yeah. one. Like yeah. I don't... I don't know what that says about me that I'm not comfortable with just like the quiet of my own thoughts. (laughs) I think you and yeah, you and a lot of people that it's just like anything, but just me and my brain. That's the, that's the, that's the enemy. (laughs) Yeah. That's how the trouble starts. (laughs) Exactly. And so you said you end up going to school for art. Where was that? I went to Millersville university. I, I went to school for art education and graduated with an art education degree. I thought I was going to, go into teaching K to 12. And I learned a lot of really great stuff there. It just, unfortunately, I graduated right after the 2008 financial issues mm-hmm. and finding a job was not easy. So it ended up being a thing where I, like, I took this thing that I was passionate about. I always knew I wanted to teach for one reason or another. It was just always what I thought I would do because I never assumed that I would make any money off of my art. Right. Uh, so I always knew I'd need another way to do that. And teaching is something I've always enjoyed. I've always enjoyed like working with people and helping to facilitate that kind of growth. So yeah, the teaching, the degree I went for ended up being kind of useless because I couldn't find a job outside of, I did a lot of sub work, substitute teaching around mm-hmm. the area. And uh, some experiences were really good, but I just, I got really tired of being cursed at by... <sighs> The teenagers oh, <laughs> uh, no. for being the person that's not their actual teacher. <laughs> so yeah, that, that kind of got old real quick. I graduated in 2008 as well with my undergrad, but my degree was in philosophy. So if you want an even less hireable degree, <laughs> an undergrad in philosophy in 2008 was possibly <laughs> the least valuable thing you could have had. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I, so for me, I decided to go to graduate school because I just was like, I need to sit, lie low someplace until this whole machine kind of gets back online. 
did you end up going to graduate school or did you just kind of stick with the the substituting? No, I went to, I did go to graduate school, but there was a couple year break. I, I ended up graduating in the spring of 2010. And by the time I was graduating, I, I kind of had a gut feeling that I didn't want to end up teaching like the K to 12 age group. Like I thought I was going to, I still went into substitute teaching. I still applied for jobs, but I was working like substitute teaching as well as working as a temp in a chocolate factory, mopping floors. <laughs> this is a really great gig. Um, <laughs> it's like, and I was like, that's in like very framing. Jeffrey Dahmer vibes, you know, <laughs> chocolate <Uh-oh>. factory. He <laughs> <laughs> did work in one of those, but I, thankfully I never, I never <laughs> developed the urge to kill. So <laughs> the chocolate real factory was positive <laughs> in my life. Yeah. So it's not, we're, we're learning that chocolate factory work and homicidal tendencies, non-corollary. Yeah. No, no, no. It's not a, it's not a true one-to-one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> No, I ended up working in a bunch of different jobs and I applied to grad schools. I think even when I was younger, my work was a, a rough sell. Mm-hmm. I applied a couple of different times to graduate schools and for various reasons, it didn't work out. So I did end up going to graduate school in 2014. I went to, used to be called Edinburgh University of Pennsylvania, is now called Penn West Edinburgh. Pennsylvania State Schools have recently kind of undergone a merger in which some of their lower enrollment schools have merged into a larger group identity. I don't know if it's good or bad at this point. But yeah, so graduate school ended up being the aim because I I liked some of the experiences I had teaching as a substitute, but I realized that like there's a definite limit to the sophistication level of work that you can discuss. And I'm always more drawn to like the conceptual end of things. And I love the art that gets like weird and often nude and uses the body in weird mm-hmm. ways. And like, you just can't talk to teenagers about that w- without things going downhill quick. So um, I kind of had the realization that I, I definitely want to teach, but it's probably going to be at the adult level. And uh, I wanted a way to continue to expand my practice because once I got out of undergrad, like I my interest in printmaking was cemented, but I became really interested in expanding into like sculpture and I hadn't really thought about performance, but there wasn't a lot that I was closed off to. And so, so was yeah. it in undergrad that you got your first introduction to printmaking? It was. I did a little bit of lino cut in high school, but it, my print sucked. I just, <laughs> I fa- in fact, I found it over over the pandemic, and I remembered how terrible that experience was. Um, <laughs> no. But I had, I had a teacher named Brant Schuler when I was in undergrad, and he taught drawing too. And we bonded over some... Uh, some common interests and he identified some stuff in my work that like felt instinctual to me, but he was able to point out the ways in which it falls into the formal elements and principles. And after working together for a semester, he's like, you should take this printmaking class. And then I did, and I really fell in love with it. So I ended up after working with him, I, the first time I took two sections of screen print. Um, And I think what really held my interest with that is like, Printmaking is a thing that's often like really technically invested, and that's mm-hmm. never really been my my bag per se. But as a professor, he was introducing us to all of like the technical masters of printing. But he's also really invested in the conceptual end of things. So during crit, he would introduce us to artists who were working in any medium who had some sort of tangential relation to the kinds of things that we were dealing with thematically in our work. So my interest in art and art history grew from taking those classes. And 
honestly, I kind of think that I, he's the reason that I'm doing any of this now. Cause like, mm. he was just like a really great teacher. He was super well-rounded. His technical ability was on point, but he always had like the conceptual and thematic things that he could talk about as well. that weren't limited to the world of print. And he was working, he made a lot of sculptural prints. So then it became like this expansive view of like, oh, well, you can just do anything with this. You don't have to just make two-dimensional work. And that really kind of jived with my mindset. So, yeah. Yeah. And so already at that time, were you making or engaging with printmaking sort of beyond maybe what we think of the traditional, it's a matrix, I transfer it, I addition it, it's done. Or did the elements of your practice now that are more performance or more engaged with the body, did that come later? I came a little bit later. I was making prints on paper. I wasn't like, it wasn't until after I got out of school and rented my first studio space with friends that I started making that kind of stuff and really experimenting outside the box. And I mean, at first, I think I was just making baby Brant work. <laughs> so it was not very good. But it once I was out of school and started going to shows, my wife and I, after we graduated on undergrad, because we met in the print studio, actually. Aww. We both had like a deep interest in seeing art. So we would go every weekend just about to Philadelphia or DC or Baltimore to see stuff. And it just the seeing the landscape of what was happening at the time, whether it was in museums or like artist run spaces, it was clear that there's a hybridity to the work that's out there that's really engaging and it's part of the, the landscape of now. So the the idea of just making prints on paper felt less relevant to my interests, especially as I like dug into the conceptual end of trying to deal with gender and sexuality in my work early on. It, I don't really feel like a hard and fast definition of my identity, so I didn't necessarily want to imply a hard and fast definition of what it is I'm doing in my work. Mm-hmm. Uh, any sense of like allegiance to one particular medium or another, although I'm, I would say that I'm, as an artist, definitely grounded in print which might bum some people out <laughs> given the way their work looks. <laughs> Wait, can you say more about that? Just because you do have, mm, let's say, uh, challenging visuals or sometimes you've got maybe off-putting visuals. Do you think that people would not like printmaking to be anywhere near that? Or what do you mean? That's such an interesting idea. <laughs> no, I just think like I'm, pretty foolish in the way that I use print and I use it in a pretty, I'm more attracted to the the way that we have a cultural identification with print mm. than necessarily really digging into the deep, like technical rigor of a lot of the stuff. So a lot of my, a lot of my work is referring back to print in very like shallow ways. Mm. And I think there's a much deeper conversation to have about the way that print has been used historically that maybe, I don't know, maybe nobody's thinking about this. So it's yeah. just my anxiety. No, I could, yeah. I could definitely see what you mean, though, because I think that there are corners of the print world that are quite rigid and almost overly defensive about what print is and what it should be. And they have, within their mind, really stick, strict boundaries of the definition of the medium and can get a little bit prickly when people sort of push around the outskirts of those boundaries. So I, I I do hear what you're saying. That makes sense now. And, you know, the kind of people who are just like, 
it is definitely this and it's definitely not that. It's it's definitely stone litho. It's never plate litho. It's definitely screen print, but I call it a stereograph and you know, it's like <laughs> it's never right Rizzo. I'm like it's I <laughs> I've met people like that. So yeah, I, I, I see what you mean. Yeah. I definitely want to hear what those people have to say after they've had a couple drinks in a bar because that's entertaining to hear. Yeah. Um, but then I'm going to go back to making the frivolous nonsense that I make. Yeah. And it's, I like all defensiveness. It definitely, I assume, comes from a place of fear of this idea that I need to somehow defend the identity of this medium for some reason, you know, whether that's because I perceive that it's not considered as legitimate as it should be, or that the way I've only had success within the medium is within these strict definitions. So I need to protect the strict definitions, but it's never from a place of openness and expansion and exploration. It's always, I think a bit of a fear-based protectiveness. Yeah. Yeah. So what were some of your early explorations like? So when you're just first starting out and you're thinking, okay, I'm I'm not going to work within the boundaries we were just speaking of, and I'm going to put in a performance element, I'm going to put in a conceptual element. How did you start making your way out into that side of art making? It was just recognizing, I think, connections with other things. One of the pieces that sticks out in my mind is like a successful endeavor into that was more sculptural and it's called i think it's probably buried somewhere on my website still can you hear me now and i Mm. made a print of a tin can and then i framed the print and mounted it side by side with the matrix and connected them with a string Mm. so you had two tin cans connected with string because i'm really interested in this way that like printmaking is a really indirect process and i think this kind of feeds into my what eventually would become my enjoyment of performance-based notions, which is that like we do all this work to a matrix, and then what we're really trying to capture in the finished print is the work that we put into the matrix. And it, some people will be like, well, I'm cutting out the middleman entirely. I'm just going to make this a drawing or a painting, but mm-hmm. we're interested in the reproducibility of the thing. So I'm really interested in that, like, that exchange of trying to reproduce something through indirect means, because it means that we can get to the reproducibility of the thing and like I think I'm losing myself on a tangent here, but my work starting out dealing with sculpture or eventually performance just came from noticing these like ideas in print that connect with things that I'm always thinking about. Because I think communication at the end of the day is really uh, at the heart of my work. And it's always through like idiosyncratic means because I always like I've gone through my entire life never feeling like fully understood. Mm. And I don't mean that in the way of like, well, what was me? Nobody understands me, but like more of like a, we're all bound through language. And yet it's funny that we can do our best to communicate through this common ground and yet still feel like we're not quite getting a full translation Mm -hmm. across. So that's where some of the original ideas came in dealing with that work. I certainly made some screen prints on like flat wood and cut them out into shapes and incorporated that into other pieces. And that's like, that's what I would say kind of just apes my undergrad mentor. In form, I think the ideas were more aligned with what, I, what I'm what i into. Like I took some of that work into grad school and that was my my second year show called Make Me. I made this like, I did a lot of screen prints on flat plywood pieces and made what 
essentially amounts to a, a full body that you can spin all the pieces. Oh, why am I blanking on the name of this drawing game? Uh, exquisite corpse? That's the one. Yeah, I made a large exquisite corpse sculpture that you could spin in a gallery space, but it's just flat screen prints on plywood. Oh, I see. Um, so people could choose what side was matched up with what side. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it was all like, it was all rooted in this idea of masculinity and how masculinity has no real hard and fast definition. Like it can be anything that it needs to be because it's a made up concept. Mm-hmm. So I had like, I had taken and screen printed everything from like Hank Hill's legs from King of the Hill to uh, <laughs> portions of a Man Ray photograph of, anyway, it doesn't matter. I was taking all these different like cultural touch points that like made a f- complete joke of masculinity. And uh-huh. the whole point was that you could do whatever you need to do. And we can all like exist comfortably under this umbrella of masculinity because it's whatever we make it. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Were they life size? The yep. corpses? Okay. Wow. So you could, you could truly build a man. All oh, yeah. of these like different ways of presenting masculine. That's, I love that idea. Yeah. I wanted, I wanted it to have that life size imposing nature because it's a, flip through something that's tiny. I did make a small book version of it. I like the fact that like it becomes a real person, so to speak, mm-hmm. in the space with you. And I would say like that piece was part and parcel the the core of what I was trying to get at was this like ability to morph an image in real time. And that's what a lot of the work in that show and some of my earlier investigations into print outside of just like two dimensions was wrapped up in. Mm. And at what point did you yourself as a performer make your way into the practice interacting with print? It was later on in grad school. So I made the work for that show and then was trying to figure out my way forward towards thesis. And my work has been embroiled in gender. I realized at some point in there that I just don't like I don't really identify with uh, the idea of being a man or being a woman. And it just has nothing to do with my day-to-day life. There's kind of identifications. Like I, I don't think in terms of those kinds of allegiances. So then I was thinking about the way that gender is an ongoing performance and whether you're trying to express your personal interest through the clothing you wear, or you're dressing conservatively to perform a version of yourself that is not going to get beat up at the truck stop. Like mm-hmm. like all of these things day in and day out are performances that are writ large over every facet of our lives. So it made sense to me to start bringing performance into the mix. Having a print background, like I made these, one of the first things I made that was performative in grad school was a piece called Dandelion. I had this alter ego that was a clown called Dandelion. And I made these, I painted my face up as the clown and I had 16 handkerchiefs and I would be wiping my face off. And when you're making print and then you're looking at like Warhol and they're noted as paintings and Mm -hmm. Eve Klein's body prints are paintings. I thought I was doing painting. And then my studio mate at the time was like, yeah, you're just making mono prints. I was like, God damn it. I thought I was getting out of print. (laughs) (laughs) Everything is print. You can't get away. So then it was like, okay, well, if I'm just going to end up making prints anyway, then I'm going to dive into this. Uh, So my interest in performance, this comes from dealing with gender in my work, but the more time I spent doing it, the more kind of similarities I I felt between performance and print, especially because at a baseline, I think there's a way in which performance makes sense with print because print 
in a large sense in the cultural sense is like really at the crossroads of everything culturally it's the mm. it's the mediator for all information to be disseminated and has been since before well since gutenberg but we've been dealing with print in varied ways since well before that it just i think it makes sense to deal with print through performance at least for me because it's such a huge commonality across cultures and across time frames in our world. See, so yeah, my final show for my thesis, I don't think there was there was one singular print on paper. Everything else was like residual from performances that had been done prior. I can't help but think about the fact of the way printmaking interacts now with the digital sphere and how if you look at all of the algorithms and everything that people get rewarded for through Instagram or TikTok, it's all—it's always this making like sped up very, very quickly. So all the, all the effort condensed into seven seconds, but it's carving, inking, printing, and, and the actual finished object, at least in the way people I've seen interact with it, in the digital sphere seems to be the performance leading up to it. And you might get half a second of the actual finished piece. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. We're not like, I mean, we've already talked about how our attention spans have never been like singularly focused on anything, but it's just heightened to absurd degrees at this point where making a finished print isn't enough because Instagram is no longer satiated just by your images. Mm-hmm. You have to be like, you have to have your space cleaned and curated to be photographable and you have to be presentable and you have to make sure you have all the sounds uh, to satisfy people's ASMR. Mm-hmm. Like it's, there's such a wild theatricality to the time that we're living that it's hard to ignore. And I, I mean, like I, I talked about on newsprint, I think there's a lot of ways in which that digital sphere is really aping print culture. And it's there's no surprises there. Like I'm sure somebody else has dealt with this in much more articulate terms than I can. But like even just looking at the visual language in which social media exists when stories came about and they had like all those blendy colored gradient backgrounds that you just put text over. I just thought about how like that just relates right back to broadside and letterpress and self-publishing. We're just, to borrow a phrase, we're just like remaking the same things over and over again, but for Mm. a different era and a different medium. Yeah. When when you started to embody the work, when you started to use your own body in the work, was that a difficult jump to make? Was there a level of discomfort that you sort of had to get over or – did you worry that you were sort of stepping through the looking glass and you'd never be able to go back, that this is going to forever change the way people see your work? Or did it just feel really natural and like this was what was supposed to happen next? <laughs> I wish that I could tell you that I was concerned that this would change the way people see my work, but I'm just <laughs> satisfied if like three people see it. So that's never a concern in my mind. <laughs> no, I mean, it's it's terrifying to perform in front of people because – if you make a piece of like two-dimensional work or a sculpture and put it in a gallery space, like certainly it stings when it doesn't get heavy critical appraisal. But like, 
if you're performing in space and somebody looks bored or somebody's like bummed about what you're doing, like that hits a real core of like, I don't want to get out of bed for the next week. Mm-hmm. I can't do this. It's a more instantaneous route to like, oh God, I'm a failure. Then <laughs> yeah. it is if somebody doesn't like, cause you know, you put your work in front of somebody and be like, well, they just don't get it. But in the, in the moment, if you're bombing, like, ugh, it's terrible. Sorry. Can I ask you what the question was again? Yeah. I definitely yeah. went on a tangent here. No, I think that that was, you, I think you really answered it was that I'm just trying to get it, the actual experience of, of using your body as part of making, you know, in part because I, I don't talk to a lot of people who do it, but it, it seems like this sort of conundrum to me where it is so intensely vulnerable, like so vulnerable as you were just speaking to that for me, I'm like, I don't, I don't know why someone would choose to do that. You know, like that sounds so emotionally taxing and potentially dangerous. And so, but clearly there was something that despite that you were like, no, this is what has to be done. Oh yeah. I think it speaks more to the the places that I've been taking influence than anything else. I've been interested in that kind of like theatricality and drama because of my sister when I was young. She was a she was a clown and did like parties and blew up balloon animals. But she was also heavily involved with a musical theater in Lancaster County called Sight and Sound. They do like religious musicals and such. So like I had that early example, but I was never a person that was like dramatic or in plays or anything and putting myself in front of a crowd would, is, is still terrifying, but was way more terrifying to a younger me. But mm-hmm. I've also been really interested in work. Like there's an artist named Kate Gilmore who works through performance and deals with sculptural installation, but also ceramic and considering performative notions of those and how they deal with considerations of gender. And I really love the work of Mary Reed Kelly um, who's taking her like the language of her drawings and paintings and making video work and performing for a camera. And then, I mean, like seeing the work of David Hammonds for the first time mm. and thinking about how like theatrical those body prints are and how like it's, it's impossible to separate the person from the thing made because he is the work. Yeah. Um, I was looking at that stuff and thinking about the impact that it had on me. And I wanted to figure out a way to utilize some of these kinds of bodied strategies. So it just became clear that like, okay, we're just going to use my body because this is a way to make, to take this very indirect process and make it like very direct and also uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. not just for a viewer. I'm sure some of my work is uncomfortable for a viewer for a variety of reasons, but like, I'm a big proponent of like, you need to do the thing that scares you Mm -hmm. within reason we want to keep certain boundaries but like if there's something that you feel is uncomfortable it's worth exploring because that's where you experience growth and i think as an artist that's crucial because if you just keep making the same things that are safe and dealing with the same ideas then there's no real path forward and for some people that works awesome and that's super great glad it just doesn't work for me. And I think it's because I have a very short attention span. So this is a way to keep myself invested is to just keep finding the things that make me uncomfortable and dealing with them in whatever way for better or for worse, because there has been better and there have been worse. Yeah. 
Yeah, I definitely connect to what you're saying about how it's sort of through the discomfort that we grow because I think I've heard someone describe it that if you're truly like your 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 mind and your body recognizes the feeling of discomfort and it doesn't know the difference between standing naked in a gallery and being attacked by a saber-toothed tiger. <laughs> your body is going to is going to react in the same way, but it means that like in those moments everything is heightened like you're fully in a place to observe, to learn, to in to get new information because it's all systems go because it's these ancient systems that start working because your body's like, we might die now. <laughs> like, even though all you're doing is breaking a social taboo and like, doesn't know the difference. <laughs> and I, I could see that the process of, of putting yourself in situations that are challenging, but you know, ultimately pretty, pretty safe in terms of bodily safety, mental safety, that kind of thing really could be a super rewarding feedback just as a person in personal growth and artistic growth. So I, I, I connect with what you said there. Yeah. It's been interesting to try to learn from those experiences because like when they're successful, you feel amazing. Like mm -hmm. when people respond to performance pieces, like it's awesome. I made a performance piece over the pandemic called I like myself and I broadcast it out over Instagram and I got a lot of really awesome feedback on that. And it felt really great. Even for like some of the things that went wrong with it, I forgot to record or I didn't forget to record the sound. The sound recording failed on the first version. So I had I to re-perform it a second time, which went better. But I got a, little, a lot of really great feedback out of that. And just the fact of having to re-perform the thing was really instructional because I, I pay a lot of, I, I pay attention to a lot of comedians and artists who perform in comedic ways that, who might identify as clowns. And just thinking about how they go out and they are performing and are really vulnerable in front of a crowd, but are trying things on a routine basis. And when mm -hmm. something doesn't work, they're tweaking it and trying it again. And my my experience in performing, and I think uh, some artists would agree with this, is that like sometimes you get one shot to do something. And if it works, awesome. If it doesn't work, well, you may or may not ever get a chance to do it again. But the experience of like, we're doing that piece over a second time and then eventually performing it live in a gallery in Philadelphia a third time, like I learned so much from just having to put myself in that like situation again and again, that it really helped the way that I think about how a crowd is going to deal with certain actions or the words that I'm putting into a performance. So I'm trying to take every opportunity to perform as many times as possible because I I was at a residency in Wasaic at the Wasaic project a couple of years ago and I wrote a performance while I was there and did it and it did not go over mm. really well, which was <laughs> terrible at the time. I had some decent conversations about it, but like I left that feeling really deflated because I I thought that I I thought I messed up and I was like, oh man, it didn't land. I don't want to do this anymore. So if you only get the one opportunity to do the thing and you have no 
potential to try it out again, like it can skew the, not just the way you view the work, but the way you view yourself as an artist. So I, I think it's huge for artists who are interested in performing and I'm sure people that are probably already know this and I'm just very late to the game, but like considering the way your audience is going to take the things that you are doing is crucial (laughs) because they are like the foundation for whether or not the work works. Mm -hmm. And when you're making two-dimensional art, it's easy to ignore that where it has been for me because it's just like, I'm going to do this thing and then move on to the next thing. And there's relative safety in the fact that I know that like, unless I'm putting something absolutely blasphemous in here, it's not going to like, it's not going to blow up my life in the same way that like bombing in front of an audience does. Cause that's not a good feeling. Yeah. That's such an important and interesting distinction about that really comes down to, of course, like that, that separation, right? Like I make something two dimensional I can put it in a gallery or even the way it works in this day and age, a lot of the time I just send it to a gallery. I got an invitational or I applied for a juried show and got in and the whole reception is completely divorced from you. You have no, you're not a viewer, you're not a fly on the wall or anything for how the work is received. But when you're performing, it's, the reception is just raw right in front of you in real time. I'm curious hearing you describe it, that how do you know when a piece is landing or a piece is bombing? What do you look for in the reception of the audience to give you that feedback? Oh, you're totally reading their cues. Like if they're looking at their phone or if they're like staring at you, like you have three heads, (laughs) that's not, that's not a good thing. But like when they're really engaged and they're, like you can see it in their faces when they're Mm. paying attention to the things that you're doing. If you have a comedic moment that you're planting, like if you get a laugh as a response, like that's a great cue. Yeah. If the work is meant to be more subtle, like just the, the, the engagement of eye contact is huge, but like if they're off in some other place or they're laughing at a place where you didn't think you were making a joke, like that's not. (laughs) So learning to read a crowd is a thing that I'm, still trying to figure out because it's germane to the whole premise of what I'm doing at this point. It can be really scary to figure out, but once you have a little bit of experience doing it, like it can be fun to play with. Yeah. Because then you can really play with their expectations once you know what they're going to respond to. And I think that's hugely powerful. And that, that reminds me a bit more about what you were talking about earlier about comedians and clowns and, and how I think some of the most brilliant comedic acts I've ever seen are people who are just playing the audience like an instrument, that leading them down this road and they know what the reaction is going to be and then twisting it in a way that it becomes surprise and delight or surprise and horror, but I'm still laughing. Speaking of of TV, have you watched the Tignataro documentary that's on Netflix that's out right now? Uh, I don't know if I've seen that one. I yeah. have seen plenty of Tig's work, but I'm not sure if I've seen the documentary. What's I, What does it focus on? Yeah, I just found it the other day. So I don't know if it's new or if it's just the algorithm spit it out to me recently. But, you know, Tig had that absolutely insanely perfect work of art, which was her stand-up set about having cancer. Oh, yeah, live. It, yeah, yeah. And 
it just, if anyone hasn't listened to it, it's, it's, you can find it online, I'm sure. And it's just, it's, it's a remarkable thing to, to be witness to. And it's kind of about her life after this and how she had this moment where she was skyrocketed into all this fame and fortune and attention with this set that she could never do again. And her creative practice around almost rehabbing herself for what do I look like on the other side of this? And so it just reminded me of what you were saying about this being able to try things again and again and then getting better at them. And if that's sort of exploration is interesting to you, I think that the documentary might be really interesting because it's it's the question of what if you had the highest, most successful moment of your career that you could never replicate as a performer? What do you do and where do you go from there? <laughs> yeah. And she's someone who just is brilliant at just playing the audience like a violin too. She's a genius at that as well. Yeah. That whole set that you're talking about, the the jokes were really, really great and raw. And her ability to process all of that stuff in real time was amazing. But just the way that she played the crowd in that mm-hmm. show, like that whole exchange of like, no, no, it's okay. I have cancer. You're going to be fine. <laughs> yeah. That was like, that was amazing. Yeah. Like I, that's the kind of thing where I, it's, brilliant and it's so funny but i felt terrible laughing at it i know that's the point but Mm -hmm. but yeah i'm sure she has way more articulate better things to say about it than i do but i i also think that in that hopefully this this speaks to what she's saying but like i think your creativity is not like a well that runs dry so Mm -hmm. you have that watershed moment and then you just move on and do the next thing Hopefully. I don't know. I've never yeah. had that that experience. So Yeah, it definitely is you know and, and it, it's it's when her story is complicated by the fact that she then of course went through all this treatment and couldn't perform for a while and that sort of thing. But it's she talks about it like a muscle that she then had to retrain and that she had to do some sets that weren't up to her standards before she got to come back and do a show that she really felt like was her. So it's it's a real fascinating look at that process that I, I think is something that artists who are, as we say, just making two-dimensional work with that kind of being divorced from the reception of it, they're not taking those risks and they're not riding the emotional roller coaster. But it seems like in a way, it's a bit of missing out of an element of making is is not to get the live feedback. And I could see really getting attached to it and really wanting more of it once you get a taste for it. Yeah. And I'd love to talk a little bit about this idea of what your experience was like in the depth deep darkness of the COVID pandemic and responding to it in real time. So you did death dream. And then you also had, I like myself that were both direct responses to this and maybe just sort of talk about what it was like for you to make work and put it out there 
in that really unsure time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously the pandemic was for hundreds of reasons, but the pandemic was like the first focused time that I had to myself in a while. I was, prior to the pandemic, I had been working in teaching. I had been organizing and curating. I had a show at Little Berlin that I curated that was up the month before everything went into lockdown. And I was still working as a a RISO operator. So my my time was pretty heavily split between all these other things. I didn't really have time for a studio practice. And it had been since probably the time I was at Wasaic in the spring of 2018 that I had really made anything very serious. Um, so the experience of having time again was, it was a double-sided coin because like on one hand, you have all this all the time in the world to read the news and see rising death tolls and everything horrible that was happening in the world. And on the other hand, like I... It was like being a kid again because I had time. I was just sitting in my bedroom and like I also had the experience of my sister was cleaning out her garage and she dropped off like boxes of my stuff that I thought she had gotten rid of. It was stuff that had been packed up when my parents had to move out of their house years ago. And I told them just like, man, just throw in the dumpster. But my sister had saved it. So it was like this moment of everything outside is terrible. Now everything inside is very reflective. And suddenly I have creative energy again. During the pandemic, my wife and I would take walks over our lunch break because she was working from home. And I, thankfully, I was teaching from home and Resolve found projects that I could do just in my house, like bone folding press sheets or making <laughs> Riso ink tube koozies. Uh-huh. But over our lunch break, we would take a walk a couple blocks up. There's a cemetery near us. And as the news was all terrible and talking about people needlessly dying. And we were walking through a cemetery in April or May. And it just made me think of like the prior year we had, we think we had the privilege of being on vacation in Paris and we walked through Père Lachaise and we'd walked through the cemetery at Montparnasse to visit famous people that were there. And mm-hmm. I, during our visit there, I had the I like had a one-off joke that I told my wife that when I die, I want my mausoleum to be a working photo booth. Because I think there's, <laughs> I think there's something really funny about making a participatory art project out of your death, in which like the memento you get is has nothing to do with the person that's dead. Just get a picture of yourself. So as like one of the days we were taking a walk during the pandemic and we're walking through the cemetery, I was like, oh, you know what? I'm gonna make a video out of that idea. It was like a the germ of an idea. So I took some time and I sat and wrote the monologue of it, and then decided to deal with it through still frame photography because I one of my favorite things is Chris Marker's Legette. It's this like really beautiful black and white. Everything is still image. I think there's maybe like one or two small moments of movement, but it's all like monologue over still image and it tells this like really terrifying story. Anyway, so this was rattling through my head when everything was terrifying. So I made Death Dream kind of in the midst of that just to respond in real time to our situation of just like being surrounded by death at every turn. And mm-hmm. then you have almost no other recourse but to consider your own mortality because any trip to the grocery store could have been one in which you get really ill because this is before we have um, before we have any vaccination or any kind of real course correct for things going awful. So it was always a possibility that like something really bad could happen. 
so I made the piece thinking that like at the very least it would be something to get my creative juices flowing again. Yeah. And it did that. And hopefully it gave up some other folks some pause to reflect about their own mm-hmm. existence as well. And then I like myself came from very similar thoughts about like, now we have a vaccine, now we're re-entering society, but what kind of damage has already been done to us, even if we didn't get sick, right? even if our lives are going to not have changed that wildly, like we've been lacking in human contact, except for like through our phone or our computer and like seeking validation through those means. So the idea of like, we've been at home spending time with ourselves and yet I don't want to speak for everybody. Like a lot of my time was spent on the computer just seeking validation of like, mm-hmm. oh God, everything is terrible outside. I feel really bad. I should post this so some people like it and then I feel yeah. good about myself. Like <laughs> um, maybe that's not a good thing. Yeah. Um, and it just, there was a lot of like, and there still is a lot of weird hucksterism on social media where like attractive people are selling you on these weird like miracle cures and homeopathy and like i don't it's all just sounds terrible <laughs> before we went into the pandemic i had, we had shot this video called tenderness and i had this idea of like dealing with a tiny screen because we're always dealing with tiny screens so i had made i'd worked with a machine shop to weld a tiny screen printing frame at the same like size and aspect ratio of a phone figuring that like i would eventually do something with it because Fortunately or not, like most of my ideas like come as this like, oh, that would be a funny object. Like, so what what is the scenario that makes sense to use this? And then I had sat on it for two years and kind of was losing faith in my ability to come up with a way to deal with it. And then it was just like, oh no, wait, no. We're gonna use this to screen print on a t-shirt and it's gonna be about this idea of like human contact and trying to get right with yourself and feel good about yourself without social media, but it's going to be just as uncomfortable and damaging. In fact, maybe more so. Um, So I mounted it as a performance on Instagram Live and invited whoever to show up and gently encouraged my friends to help me not bomb uh, by participating. Because I really, I love art that engages an audience and I like Mm -hmm. when people are able to participate because I think people want to be part of something, even if it's uncomfortable and real stupid. (laughs) And it was uncomfortable and real stupid, <laughs> in part because that's just the way my mind works. So I always want those things to be involved. I feel uncomfortable all the time. Yeah. Right now, then, tomorrow, discomfort. <laughs> uh, like, Let's share the experience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And also uncomfortable because that's there's a learning curve in technology because I failed to record the sound on the first one but <laughs> it ended up being for it ended up being for the best because the more that I have the more time I spent with that thing the better it got unfortunately yeah. I don't have a I don't have a good recording of the third version but I think that was the best one and by that time like I knew the script in and out and the idea of like performing this for a virtual audience was no longer like terrifying I wasn't I wasn't like shivering in anticipation it just like went off and i felt like comfortable in my skin or as comfortable as i get in my skin and it just really worked i think the second time works really well which is the recording that's online although i see all the mistakes in it so 
Yeah. I don't watch it anymore. <laughs> it's amazing how quickly we can adapt. You know, as you said, it just took two iterations to get you prepped for an iteration where you felt at home in it. That's yeah. kind of amazing. Yeah. But that's a, that's a like death dream. You can still watch now. And it like, that could be in a gallery space and it's still relevant, but I like myself, unfortunately, there's the time for it, I think was in the moment while mm. people were still stuck inside while, or even as some people were like venturing back out, I don't, I don't know how well that would play now. I would have to rewrite that thing considerably to make yeah. that play for an audience now, because I think we're all lacking in that kind of shared experience that made it work. Yeah. Although I do think that the trying to find ways to like yourself through your phone is perennial. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm starting to think that maybe the answer is not in the phone. Yeah. <laughs> but well, that's just me. Do you have any projects on the horizon that you want people to to know about or anything that you want to shout out that people could even participate in? Sure. So I'm collaborating with a fabulous artist named Kit McNeil. They're a Canadian artist or they're an artist from the U.S. living in Canada. We've been collaborating on developing performance series for printmaking called Fine Print or No Fine Print. We just did our first iteration live at MAPC in the fall, and we're looking for opportunities to kind of restage it. We're looking at virtual options since the opportunities for us to come together as printmakers, and especially the even smaller contingent of printmakers who are interested in performance are kind of rare Mm -hmm. and usually occur at the conference level. We're thinking about virtual options for live performance or even developing a reading series to help share ideas around performance art to help folks that are like, I don't get why this makes sense. We can share some stuff that'll give you a look into our brain. Yeah. Um, but also maybe function as a support group <laughs> for weirdos <laughs> existing in print who have an idea and they want to bounce it off other people just to see if we all think it'll play. So you can find <laughs> us there at no underscore fine print. Um, that's really the project that I have on the horizon that I'm excited about. We've been working together for the last year, trying to find a way to collaborate in a way that we thought would like make the most sense. And we'd been applying for other things. And my wife and I listened to this one po- comedy podcast. And the one, one of the days that I was dreading, like, I don't know, we're nobody gets what we're doing. And she had listened to an episode of good one that was talking to the comedian, Chris red. He was talking about moving to a new city and he's like, yeah, I've moved to a new city and I didn't really find the thing that I was, a place that I was at home at. And then it just dawned on me, like, I, I got to just do my own thing and mm. build it. And then people will come together around my sensibility. So for better or worse, we decided to use the same idea and create a space for people that have the same kind of aesthetic leanings that we have, which is a pretty broad umbrella, I think. So that's a project that is always perpetually on the horizon. That's uncertain. Yeah, so that's what I'm working on. Yeah. And then where can people find you and follow you and affirm you through social media? (laughs) (laughs) You can find me at www.henrygepfer.com. And I'm also on Instagram at Henry Gepfer. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Henry, for, for taking an hour out of your morning. I love the way you think about things and that you're there in our print community. I think we're, we're definitely better for it. Awesome. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. If you liked today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content. 
Like Shop Talk Shorts, where our editor, Timothy Pauschak, digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with past guests. Also, if monetary support isn't in the cards right now, you can leave a review for us on your podcast listening app of choice, or buy something from one of our sponsors and tell them Hello Print Friend sent you. But as always, the very, very best thing you can do to support this podcast is by listening and sharing with your fellow print friends around the world. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guests are Melissa and JW from the Little Friends of Printmaking. We talk about getting professional gig poster commissions while still in graduate school, drawing on inspiration from our art world heroes, never running out of ideas, and feeling out of place. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week. Thank you.